book of Jonah came up, and as I was thinking about what I might want to talk about, I was remembering last week and thought, it is a good night just to kind of take a snapshot of this book. So uh, while you're turning there, I'm going to pray one more time, and then we'll get into as much as we can get into with the time we have, okay? Father, thank you for this night. Thank you for your word, and I pray that you will be glorified by your word being taught. I pray, Father, that I will be able to communicate both faithfully and effectively, and that if we have questions about this book, hopefully they'll be answered tonight, and hopefully it'll provoke more thought, more further study, that we might perceive your glory even greater than we do now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to not read the whole book tonight, so you can thank me for that later. But I do encourage you to read the whole book tonight. Maybe go home, and before you go to bed, it probably won't won't take you more than 10 to 15 minutes to read through this book. It's only four chapters long, and a couple of the chapters are are really short. So uh, I I do encourage you to do that. But we are going to uh, look at this. And, And Jonah, of course, is one of the... Well, how do I want to put this? One of the, the stories, and it's not a story, it, it happened, okay? It, it really happened. But it's one of those uh, accounts that we're more familiar with from the Old Testament because you know, it's just kind of this bizarre thing, this bizarre series of events. And it makes for a good Sunday school lesson as well for children, you know, because this account, this short book is full of vivid images that we can see in our mind's eye that children can draw on a piece of paper. But as is often the case, when we, when we take a closer look, as I hope we will tonight, we're going to see there is more to this book than meets the eye. And, and that's because in some ways the story and the prophecy of Jonah is a microcosm of the history of Israel and in some ways how Jesus saves us. So let's start with just a couple of introductory 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 things like what do we know about Jonah well we aren't told specifically that he wrote the book but it is pretty clear he did we have every reason to believe he did we know that Jonah's name means dove we know that he was the son of a man named Amittai we know that he was from the town of Gath-hefer and that is about three miles northeast of a more famous Bible town, Nazareth. Now, you ask, well, how do we know all of these things? Because not all of these things are said here. Well, he's also talked about very briefly in 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 27 through 25. We find out that he was a prophet called to the northern kingdom of Israel, the divided kingdom. You have Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and he, he's up there in the north. And he prophesies under the kingship of Jeroboam II, that the borders of Israel would be restored. Now, Jeroboam II, just real quick, was one of the more stable leaders the northern kingdom ever had. But if you know anything about the kings of that northern kingdom, you know, when you read through the book of 1 Samuel, well, well, not 1 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, you'll see that some did good in the sight of the Lord, some did evil in the sight of the Lord, but none of the kings of the north of, of Israel did get good in the sight of the Lord. They all are said to have done evil. And it was during Jeroboam's reign that he was ministering, that Jonah was ministering, uh, and that would be the first half of the 8th century B.C. before either of the kingdoms was exiled. So this, just to put it in a biblical framework, biblical timeline here, 
Amos is alive at this time. Hosea is alive and prophesying during this time as well. But the book of Jonah is different from those other books of the prophets because it's almost entirely narrative. And what I mean by that is there aren't a lot of oracles. You know, that you read through some of the, the minor prophets in particular, and they're very heavy on judgments against Babylon, judgments against Moab, and all kinds of prophecies. And we don't get a whole lot of that in the book of Jonah. He is commissioned as a prophet. He did prophesy, but this tells more about his story than it does those other things. So let's just start. And again, we're, not gonna, we're just going to kind of pick and choose what we read here tonight. But let's look at the first two verses in, in chapter 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. And of course, whenever we see uh, in your translation, I don't know what you have in front of you, but if you have a, a capital O with a lower capital O-R-D, that's the covenant name of God. That's Yahweh. So it's not pick a God, any God. It's the God. It's Yahweh. And uh, that's what we read here. And I don't know about you, but I've always been hesitant to be too hard on Jonah uh, for what he did and how he felt. And, and maybe you have been hesitant to be hard on him too because who among us finds it easy, given our own sin, to love people we don't like, right? Not, not every one of us likes everybody else in this world. It, it, it's just it's, it's how it goes. But we are commanded to love one another. And that, that is a command. It's not an option. But here we're talking about Nineveh. We talked about this a little bit last week during the Q&A. Nineveh is this major city in the kingdom of Assyria. And Assyria at this time is the most powerful geopolitical entity in the world, at least in the known world. And to say that they were a thorn in the sides of Israel and Judah would be a massive understatement. And if you or I had lived in Israel or Judah during the time of Jonah, we would have liked nothing better than to see Assyria, Nineveh, brought down. You add to that that Assyria is not... Uh, a, a group of people they're, they're not a kingdom that loves Yahweh, that loves the Lord they are a polytheistic kingdom they worship many gods uh, add, that, uh, add to that even they were legendary for their cruelty and their brutality against their enemies the Assyrians were well known to impale their enemies on stakes in front of their towns they would hang heads from trees in the king's gardens they tortured those they took captive, and that includes women and children. They would cut off body parts, noses, uh, ears, fingers, hands. They would gouge out eyes. It is said that they covered the city walls with the skins of victims and placed the skulls of rebellious subjects in piles by the road as a warning to others. And I know that's not what you wanted to hear right after dinner, but just to communicate how evil this kingdom was. It, evil permeated the Assyrian kingdom. So imagine being Jonah then and being told by God, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. If you're Jonah, you're probably saying, Good, I'm glad it's come up before you because you need to deal with them. But of course we know that's not what 
God wanted Jonah exactly to say. Let them know they are sinning. Let them know judgment is coming and that they had better repent now. Would you want to be that prophet? Would you want to be that preacher? Would you want to be the one God had called to go and tell these evil people to repent? That would be like me and you being called to go to wherever ISIS is located tonight and preach this to them. Uh, and now, and I don't say that to excuse Jonah for his reaction, but as a fellow sinner, I can understand where he was coming from in verse 3. And let's look at verse 3. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. That word, you know, that... Tarshish is repeated there for emphasis because God told Jonah to go 500 miles to the east to Nineveh. But Jonah fled in the direction of Tarshish instead. And if you're wondering where that is, it is believed to be in the West Mediterranean. Uh, Modern day Spain and the city that is today known as Cadiz, which is just northwest of the Strait of Gibraltar. In other words, he was trying to go 2,000 miles west of Israel when he needed to go 500 miles west of Israel. In other words, he had decided, I'm going to get as far away from there as I can possibly get. The furthest place I can that I know of, I'm going to go there and try to hide from this, to try to hide from God. He would have rather quit the prophetic ministry than preach to the people of Nineveh. And I don't have to tell you what happened next. Yahweh himself hurled a great wind and caused a storm so violent the ship Jonah was on was about to break up. Not just sink, but break up. And we see the sailors. And what are they doing? They're crying out to their gods for help while Jonah is asleep. And the fact that he's asleep during this has always staggered me. Because you know we read about... In the New Testament, Jesus sleeping on a boat while the disciples are, are freaking out during a storm. And it's almost as if even in Jonah's rebellion, he is at rest because he knows God is sovereign. And, it, and if he dies, it's no big deal because God has called him to these things. And that may be a little bit of speculation on my part. Maybe he was just a heavy sleeper, but it's an interesting thing to ponder. <coughs> so the men cast lots. And it falls to Jonah. He's the one who's responsible for this calamity that has come upon them. And and we, what do we know? We know that Jonah confesses that I'm a Hebrew. I fear Yahweh, God of heaven. He made the land. He made the sea. Uh, he tells them, I'm fleeing from Yahweh. I'm trying to escape him. And the sailors of all people are the ones to ask, how can you do this? Now think about that. That'd be like you and me, just to carry the analogy forward. You know, let's not go to ISIS. Let's go to the furthest place we can from the Middle East. Let's go to North Korea. And the North Koreans saying, what are you doing? <laughs> just to kind of carry that analogy forward. And, and what they say, how can you do this? That is a particularly insightful question from men who up to this point don't worship the one true God. How can you run away from Yahweh, and it's a question we would all do well to consider tonight, especially maybe as Revival Week is coming on, and maybe the Lord is speaking to your heart tonight about who do I need to invite, who do I need to be proclaiming the gospel to, what kind of commitment do I need to be making 
to further the kingdom of God, to, to try to, to, to do what God has called me to do. And maybe you're running from it tonight. Maybe you're running from, away from God in that sense. And let me tell you something, it doesn't work. Psalm 139, Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. Up, down, left, right, it doesn't matter how far you go, or how high you go, or how deep you go, God is there. You cannot escape him. And Jonah knew it. And so he volunteers to be thrown overboard. He knows God is after him. And he knows the seas will calm. And they do. Immediately, God calms the seas. And the, the men, they fear Yahweh greatly. The sailors, these unsaved sailors, begin to praise God. And Jonah, Yahweh, verse 17, appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And as we all know, Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. And if you're Jonah, you probably think, this is how it ends. This is, this is the end. For, this, uh, this is my end in, this, in the belly of this fish, whether it was a whale or some other kind of water beast, I don't know. But, but this was his just punishment for trying to run away from the sovereign Lord of the universe. If, if God had chosen to take him out right there, he would have been just because God is right to punish sin and God is right to discipline his children. As we, we talked a little bit about that last week as well. But the compassion of God upon Jonah overrides all of this. And as we know, Jonah does not die, but instead comes to understand that God is still with him. And if that isn't a comfort to you tonight, I hope it will be by the time we're done tonight. Because even in the worst possible situations, if you're in Christ, God never leaves you. God never leaves you. And God will use you to accomplish His purposes. Jonah would learn that. But sometimes we have to suffer His discipline first. And that's what Jonah was doing. And, and he eventually does learn the lesson. Let's read all of chapter 2 because it's only 10 verses and it's so powerful. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish and he said, <clears throat> I called out of my distress to the Lord and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. 
Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. And and so we read this, and in the midst of what must have been an excruciating experience, the likes of which we really can't fathom, Jonah remembers the Lord. Just as the Lord had been with, with him, even though he was disobedient this whole time, Jonah was now committing to be with Yahweh. His prayer has this important realization that salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is from Yahweh. And why was that important for Jonah to realize right then and right there in the belly of this fish? Because without salvation from God, Jonah might as well have been a Ninevite himself. Without God's salvation coming upon you, we might as well be the worst of sinners ourselves. That's why Paul could say, I'm the foremost of sinners. That's why he writes in Romans 3 that there is none who is righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. And by the way, he's just quoting the Old Testament there. This is not something he just conjured up. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, if we have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we, we can't do anything in and of ourselves to attain salvation. So salvation has to be from the Lord. Without Yahweh's salvation, Israel would never have existed. You know, they would have been in Egypt. They would have assimilated into the Egyptian race for sure by this time. Jo- Jonah realized that everything he was, everything he knew, everything he believed, every hope he ever had was all by the grace of God to begin with. Salvation was not of him any more than it was not of Israel and not of Nineveh. It was from the Lord. And when he prayed that, God, Yahweh, commands the fish to vomit up onto the dry land Jonah. And, and, and note that, Yahweh commanded it. He's in control the whole time. God's sovereignty is never thwarted by Jonah's disobedience any more than we can thwart God's will. So the sailors have experienced God's wrath in the storm and they've heard the prophetic word through Jonah. They've heeded it. And God shows them mercy. Now Jonah has experienced God's wrath in the the belly of the fish and he hears the voice of God and he's now heeding it. So God shows him grace and mercy. And this is Jonah's second chance. And I thank God tonight that he is a God who does give us second chances and sometimes third chances and fourth chances and 18 million chances. He says again in chapter 3, verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So in other words, his mission did not change. And so... This 500-mile journey begins. He gets to Nineveh. He proclaims the proclamation God gave him. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Or, or what that literally 40 days and Nineveh will be turned. Now, if we were to compare, you know, many of us might feel today, and I was just talking at dinner time about this a little bit. I don't think I used it in these words, but you know, our, our society is becoming more secular by the day. Yeah, we are 
it, it's not wrong to think you know, we kind of live in a modern day Nineveh or, or a Babylon. Same, same kind of wickedness. It was a wicked place. And, and we wouldn't expect to get positive results if we went out and preached the kind of fire and brimstone message that God gave Jonah to preach. You know, God has not called us to go out there and say, everything's going to be okay. You know, we're not called to go out and proclaim a message that people, the message we preach to people, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, is the aroma of life leading to life or the aroma of death leading to death. People are going to be saved by it or people are going to grow to hate him even more. We call people to repent. It goes against our, our desire to sin in the first place. So we wouldn't expect Jonah to get positive results. It's certainly not what's in vogue today to preach repentance. Like Jonah, we were more likely to get killed doing that than praised. But wouldn't you know it, Nineveh did repent. Perhaps our own Nineveh would repent too. If we go out, and let, let me just say, not just try to get people into church and not just try to get people to come to revival, but go tell them why they need Jesus Christ. They need to repent and entrust themselves to Him. Nineveh repented. Nineveh, what does it say they did? They fasted. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Word spread all the way to the king who himself became very humble. I would love to see our elected leaders and judges humble themselves like this. Uh, the king of Assyria, who, let's, let's just put this into perspective, the sovereign over the wicked nation of Nineveh, this wicked empire, proclaims a fast kingdom-wide and instructs the men of his kingdom to call upon God that they might turn from their wicked way and from the violence in their hands. Because look at chapter 3, verse 9. What does he say? Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw His burning anger so that we will not perish. If you're pessimistic about our society and the way it's heading today, there's some hope from the worst of the worst right here. Who knows? If we go out and preach repentance to people, who knows God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Think about that. This is a, a staggering example of a universal truth that all men deep down in their hearts know the one true God when they hear him. Yeah. There are, you may have heard someone else say this, maybe a different way, but there are really no atheists in the world. There are people who assert they are atheists. But Romans 1 tells us that all men are without excuse. And, and, and then, then in, their, they, in their sin, they choose not to acknowledge God as God. Not everyone who, who hears God's voice, God's voice and realizes whether he wants to admit it or not, it is God's voice. Not everyone who hears is going to repent but that doesn't get in the way of Christ's command to us to go and preach the truth. Yes? First, 
Exactly. Right. And there are a thousand arguments you could make like that when it comes to that that specific worldview. And, and, and just if you want to go and read more about that, Romans one eighteen through thirty two, they begin to worship the creature, the creature instead of the creator, and that's exactly the kind of thing we see widespread in, in Western civilization today. But we, none of that gets in the way of our command to go and proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. Our, our communities, our state, our country just might repent. In the blink of an eye, God might turn on the light of a heart to realize, yes, judgment is coming, but Yahweh is compassionate. The most hardened sinner you can think of just might repent. There's a hymn that's coming to my mind right now, and I'm probably going to butcher the word. The most violent offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the earth hear His voice. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. How many of you have relatives you fear will never come to Christ? The message here is don't give up on them. Keep putting the seed of the gospel in front of them. That coworker who's antagonistic to your faith, that friend from your youth who you were close to but now you couldn't be further from as far as what you believe. We don't know who will repent. We just have to keep proclaiming the truth and by the grace of God they might just repent because even Nineveh did. Look at chapter 3 verse 10. When God saw their deeds that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity with which He had declared He would bring upon them and He did not do it. Now, in Luke chapter 15 verse 10, Jesus says there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And we know the Christian thing to do is rejoice when sinners repent and believe in the gospel, when they trust in Jesus. But, you know, I mentioned last week how I felt on 9-11. What if one of your family members was killed in the Twin Towers? What if that happened and then you saw the Palestinians that day on video who were dancing in the streets because of the 9-11 attack? You might feel like Jonah did then. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. But it greatly displeased Jonah. He would not have made a very good revival speaker at this point in his life. But it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and the one who relents concerning calamity. He didn't want to obey God because he knew what God was like. That's a, that's a heart that is bent towards sin. He wasn't afraid of what God might do to him. He fled because he knew what God might do for the Ninevites. And what does Jonah do here? He, he appeals to God's own description of himself and, and Exodus 4 verses, uh, chapter 34, rather. Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7. That's that passage 
where Moses says to God, show me your glory, and he puts him in the cleft of a rock. And it's not what Moses sees that is as, as glorious as what he hears. And what does he hear? That Yahweh speaks words about himself, that he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Jonah knows God and what God might do, and he pouts about it. His hatred for his enemies is greater than his knowledge of the compassion of his Savior. And so here he asks to die. God asks, do you have a good reason to be angry? Now think about that one. Do you have a good reason to be angry with others? If you're angry with somebody here tonight even, do you have a good reason to be angry with others? You are a sinner just like they are, just like I am. Do you have a good reason to be angry? Jonah goes out of the city. He makes a shelter. He's, he's going to sit down and watch what happens to Nineveh. What we see in, in chapter 4 is that the Lord Yahweh appoints a, a large plant to grow and be shade. Jonah's happy about the plant. The next day he appoints a worm to attack the plant and it withers and the sun beats down and it's met by this scorching east wind and Jonah again wants to die. He says, death is better to me than life. Not exactly the kind of response to a revival you want to see either, is it? But, but that is indeed the self-deception of many when they are not delighting in the law of the Lord. Look at verses 10 and 11 again. This is how the book actually closes. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow. Why? Because God causes the growth. Which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals? That's kind of an awkward ending to the book. But what God has done for Jonah is, is here stress once again that salvation is from him. Will, will Jonah have compassion on about a plant but not allow God to have compassion on people whom he has created in his image? Will Jonah have compassion on a plant and not allow God to have compassion on animals? And I believe that the book ends this way to give us the answer to the question. Because Jonah has no more protest left in him. He, God, God basically shuts him up here. We have it implied here that he got the message. That, that God brought him through the judgment of his attitude to salvation. Which is the kind of attitude the angels have about God relenting from calamity and showing mercy. They rejoice. And I hope that we rejoice at the compassion of God. I hope tonight in your heart, think back to, to you before you were saved. If indeed you are in Christ with me tonight, what has God saved you from? And rejoice at the compassion of God. I hope you rejoice about that and also that you know, He has shown it to you. 
You know, I said a few minutes ago that Jonah was kind of a microcosm of the history of Israel. I want to just touch on that real quick before we, we close up shop here. Israel did not create itself. Israel did not create itself. God created Israel. He brought them out of Egypt. Of course, if you want to go even further back, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But really, Israel is constituted through the sons of Jacob, and they're coming out of Egypt to Israel. They come to they, they come to the mountain. God commissions them in Exodus nineteen verse six to be a kingdom of priests to walk in the ways of the Lord. Now, did Israel do that? No, they didn't. They walked in the ways of the Canaanites. They walked in the ways of those God was ejecting from the very land He was going to give Israel. They ended up being just like them and worse because they knew better. They were grossly sinful. I almost taught about a guy named Jehoiada tonight from 2 Kings. I encourage you to go back and look at his life and the kind of sinful environment he was living in. It was rough. But that was Israel. And as a result of sin, Jonah had to go through a kind of a death and resurrection before he obeyed and went to Nineveh. And, and there's a guy by the name of Dr. James Hamilton. I used to coach T-ball with this guy, by the way. But uh, he puts it like this in a book. He says, Like the nation of Israel as a whole, Jonah is somewhat reluctant, is a somewhat reluctant light to the nations. And he pursued his calling only after the resurrection that followed the death of three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. Likewise, because of their sin, Israel will have to go through a death and resurrection of sorts. They would be exiled a few decades after Jonah's death. The kingdom to the south, Judah, would follow later. And while they did eventually return to the land, as a whole, Israel is still living today in in disobedience to God. They are still in a state of spiritual exile from the Lord. But there is coming a day when Jerusalem will be a light to the nations, shining the very glory of Yahweh as nations stream to Jerusalem to learn His ways. And this will happen, of course, through Jesus Christ. And I, and I say that, I, I, I put the, the ending there to ask the question, what do we take away from the book of Jonah? And I guess my challenge tonight to each of us is to ask ourselves, are we a reluctant light to the nations? Are we a reluctant assembly of missionaries? You know, missionaries aren't just the people we support with our offerings. Missionaries aren't just the people who come, maybe come in once in a while and and preach a sermon or, or tell you about what's going on in Costa Rica or Uganda or wherever they are. If you're in Christ... You're a missionary or you're living in disobedience. Because just like Jonah, we've been called to go to some people. We've been called to go and make disciples of all nations, of all peoples. Teaching them all Jesus commanded and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. With the promise that He will be with us to the end of the age. And why can we do this? Because... What do we learn from Jonah? We have a very compassionate God. He's compassionate toward us when we do not deserve it. So we should model His character and show compassion to others. And our, and our love for Christ and our desire to fulfill His command to preach the gospel should override any 
apathy or hate we have in our hearts. Second thing we see, and Jonah had a hard time with this, but we've got to come to mourn our own sin. Because there are some times when Nineveh is us. There are some times when we are the ones who need to repent. We need to learn to mourn our own sins the way we see Nineveh mourn their own sins. Eventually, Nineveh would stop mourning their own sins, and in the book of Nahum, they would be crushed. So we need to make sure we're, you know, Tim, maybe uh, that's one reason why things are going the way they're going. We stop mourning our own sin. Third, we need to hear the voice of God through His prophet in the Scriptures. We cannot flee from God. And the question comes, will, will we value His glory over our own? And I'm, I'm just going to close there. You know, God's glory radiates through this book. I hope maybe I've provoked some thoughts about this book. Maybe you haven't thought about before. But, but what we see in Jonah is a microcosm of how we are to be saved and, and, and what we are to do once we're saved. God's compassion upon us, us going out in compassion for others, His mission, proclaiming His, His, His gospel, knowing that salvation is from the Lord. May God be pleased with our response. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this evening. Thank You for the book of Jonah. Uh, thank you that you have encapsulated in four short chapters these very real and powerful events which shaped a, a, a kingdom for at least a short time and the message that comes forth shapes our, our, our own obedience and our, our own mission today. Father, help us to know that it's useless to run from you. If we're in Christ, we have a, a commission to fulfill. If we are disciples, we are to make disciples. And there's no getting around that. Father, uh, strip away our apathy. If there is apathy, strip away our, our anger and our hate maybe that we might have toward others. Because the deceiver loves to, 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 to plant those seeds. And, and that, that, that's that old sin that you've saved us from, it can come back and creep in. And it can start to dominate if we don't look to you. And, and so, Father, that's why we've got to humble ourselves and, and be yours the way you are ours. Lord, help us to, to fulfill your mission for us. Bless this church. Bless the people hearing me tonight. And bless the revival next week, Father. I pray we go out and proclaim your gospel and get people here to hear more of it, that lives might be changed for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.